I'm Aaron Ross Powell, and this is Reimagining Liberty, a podcast exploring the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical social, political, and economic freedom. We all want to alleviate poverty and help those living with it. The hard question is how. The left has a set of ideas focused on redistribution and the welfare state. The right tends instead to view poverty as the result of moral and cultural failings. Libertarians have their own set of answers, but have often been pretty bad at talking about them in persuasive ways, developing a reputation for just not caring about the poor. My friend Michael Tanner, senior fellow at the Cato Institute, has the kinds of ideas we need more of and talks about them in the way I wish more of us did. He's had great success in bridging ideological divides while advocating for principled, market and liberty-based ways of addressing both immediate and long-term poverty. Before we jump into our conversation, let me briefly remind you that if you like this show and want to listen to new episodes two weeks early, consider becoming a supporter. Just head to reimaginingliberty.com slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. In addition to early access episodes, you'll get early access to my new essays and be able to join our fun Discord community to talk with your fellow listeners and me and participate in our book club discussions. One of the areas that I think makes a lot of people on the left particularly skeptical of a pro-liberty, pro-liberalism, pro-libertarian position is poverty and welfare, is the idea that, yeah, maybe free markets create wealth, but they leave a lot of people behind. They price a lot of people out of prosperity and and also that – Believing in them or not wanting robust welfare states is indicative of not really caring about the poor. What's wrong with that message? Is it simply the case that we as advocates for liberty say, sure, the poor need to just kind of get jobs and pull themselves up by their bootstraps? I think too often libertarians do exactly that. They they sort of uh, take the wrong time horizon, if you will, on this. Uh, we under, should understand that in the long run, economic growth and free markets are going to lift more people out of poverty than programs are going to do. But we shouldn't pretend that that's going to make everything all right in the short term. That if you ended welfare tomorrow, uh, a lot of people would be suffering. And we shouldn't just sort of kind of hammer on this idea of cut, 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 or make welfare as distasteful as possible. What we should be trying to do is make welfare as unnecessary as possible to try to deal with it sort of from the outside in, if you will, kind of uh, create as much prosperity, as much uh, economic liberty as possible to enable people to kind of take charge of their lives. And then we can go back and look and see who's left behind and how much we need to help them and what's the best way to help them. Too often, I think we sort of start with this idea up front of we're going to cut welfare by X percent uh, or do away with this program or that program, and we haven't set the groundwork for that. It feels like also the the cutting welfare thing gets used as a proxy for other issues that that say liberty advocates don't want to admit they have unseemly positions on. So one version of this, I think the, the most common one is the we can't let in immigrants until we you know as long as there's a welfare state and and that, that argument is transparently employed as a way to oppose immigration without saying i'm just against 
more Hispanics in this country or more people who don't speak English or more people who don't share my cultural preferences and tastes. And so I can point at the welfare state as you know what seems like a more principled way. Um, I think there's also a lot of blaming people who are poor for their poverty. And and so then, but rather than just coming out and saying, look, I think you, you know, due to your actions or whatever I imagine you have done, you deserve to be poor, I can instead just say, look, I'm not going to give you anything because, you know, I'm going to, again, wall off the welfare state. We're going to harp on that as as like a less, a more socially desirable way of getting at kind of excluding the people we don't like. Yeah, I think that's right. And you can sort of look at it historically uh, uh, with the American attitudes towards welfare. If you go back to Lyndon Johnson and the launch of the Great Society, there was enormous support for the welfare state uh, at that time. His proposals were actually quite popular and they went through Congress with fairly large margins. But by the time you get around to less than 20 years later to with Reagan, you're talking about the welfare queens and the failures of welfare and so on. Now, some of that's legitimate. I mean, welfare programs did not bring the uh, people out of poverty the way they were supposed to. And they, uh, there was a lot of failures, and a lot of waste, a lot of fraud and abuse. But it was also a change in who we thought was getting welfare. Uh, back in 1964, it was Michael Harrington and the other America. It was West Virginia coal miners and hardworking people just got laid off in their factory and we sort of had this you know grudging respect for them and it was there it wasn't their fault and if if you look to say 1980 three out of every four news stories about welfare actually featured a single black woman with kids and it was a very different population that the public was being exposed to and i and i think that that really did change attitudes about it. From somebody, well, of course we want to help them, to somebody that, well, they've got these other problems. They're promiscuous, they're lazy, they're whatever it is, because they're others. Uh, they're not like us. The, I would never be in that situation. You saw something, I mean, exactly the same thing happened with the fentanyl crisis and and drug use. That it was, you know, these drug users, people who are addicted are, um, when it was, when it was blacks in the inner city it was their fault and they were you know all predators and addicts and whatnot but then when it was the fentanyl in rural white communities it was you know external pressures had driven them to this the you know lack of jobs made them use the drug it was they there was much more sympathy much more sympathy like outpouring of sympathy to the groups that looked like looked like us versus didn't look like us yeah, I think that I think that's exactly right. It's if this could happen to me or to my family or to my friends, then I think there there's a larger problem that has to be dealt with. If it happens to a bunch of people that I that don't look like me or that I don't know or that I could somehow think of as lesser than me, then it's their problem and their fault. And I, I do think we sort of demonize the poor. There is a great deal of attitude that the poor are basically lazy, that the poor are, don't behave well. And there's really not very much evidence to support that. Uh, there's there's evidence that suggests that behavior could change and make a difference in getting out of poverty. But most of that behavior is created by the programs and the incentives and the structures of society themselves. So picking up on that then, what is wrong with the way that we currently do welfare? Because my, my friends on the left who are pro-welfare, their, their typical argument is we should 
do what we're doing now, just more of it. But it sounds like you don't think that's the right approach. Well, I think we have to ask what the goal of welfare should be. And to some degree, it's to make sure that nobody starves to death in this country. And we do actually do a pretty good job of that. Uh, We're not the South Sudan. You're not seeing mass starvation. We could argue about whether or not everybody's getting the food and health, the food that they need and things of that nature. But by and large, people are not starving to death. They have a roof over their heads. We do a fairly good job of making poverty kind of less miserable, if you will. Uh, and if you actually want to, if you take the poverty rate, most people look at the sort of the Census Bureau poverty rate, but there's a better alternative poverty measure. I think it's a supplementary poverty measure where you actually look at the benefits that people receive and what that does to poverty rate. It goes down quite a bit. What we don't do a good job of is sort of moving, uh, moving people out of poverty permanently and enabling them to become self-sufficient, enabling them to sort of go as far as their individual skills uh, will take them. If you look at it as sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs in, in a way, uh, at the bottom of that pyramid are sort of the basic necessities of life, food, shelter, and so on. We target all of our efforts at that bottom of the base of the pyramid. We don't do much as moving up there towards that self-actualization at the top, and that's really what we should want. We don't want people just to kind of survive. We want people to flourish, and I, and I think that that's what we should be talking about. I just want to clarify what we mean by poverty because we've used that and you've talked about measures of it and and we're not we're not the Sudan like we don't have poverty in America as you said does not look like it does in a lot of other countries and so when we're talking about lifting people out of poverty what do we mean by what does that cutoff look like in terms of typical lifestyle because it's not out on the street starving and it is just it's a it's a relative measure so compare like compared to what but so what is it's a lot of way to say like what does poverty look like in America right now well, it's very hard to actually measure people try doing various income measures and I'm not convinced any of them particularly work consumption based measures are interesting people actually uh, who are low income actually spend about a dollar 50 for every dollar they say they earn so there's obviously a lot going on in the gray economy and credit smoothing things out and things of that nature that we that we should be looking at but part of it is just things are so mixed uh, there's a story of the family in rural Kentucky that's got you know they've got a TV they've got a phone they've got all sorts of things that were once were considered luxuries and we say well they're not poor on the other hand, they can barely pay their electric bill. The TVs often don't work. They've got a nice, they've got a car in the yard, but they can't gas it up. Uh, you know, are they poor? Are they not poor? Uh, it, it's it's hard to to put a measure to it. What we do know is that they are not really able to take care of themselves to be masters of their own fate, so to speak. And I, and I think that that is ultimately the goal. We certainly know that they could be in a better situation than they are today. And the question is how to help them get there. How did they get to poverty in the first place? Because this is another area where if I look at the way that progressives talk about poverty or the way that conservatives talk about poverty, there's narratives at play. And so for the conservative, it is often this – they made bad decisions um, and they're now suffering the fruits of those. For the – on the left though, there's this narrative that poverty is – Poverty is something that is caused. It's it's almost as if like in 
in the natural state, there is abundance. And you see this on like the very far left a lot. Like natural state is kind of abundance, but then capitalism causes poverty by commodifying things, making us then buy things that used to be freely available or that we used to give away and so on. And and then it has an interest in making it so that some people can't afford this stuff. And so poverty is a result of markets is what the left says and the right says poverty is the result of basically poor character um and what's the what's the actual answer yeah there, there's actually something i think on both sides of this argument to, to, to some degree there's uh i mean on the, the right they point to something called the success sequence you hear a lot of talk about that at least in academic circles on the right and that's the idea that if you finish school you get a job you don't have children until after you're married. You're unlikely to end up in poverty. And statistically, you can show that all those things are true. You're, you're, if you drop out of high school, you're about half of, half of people who drop out are likely to end up in poverty. Go on and finish college, you're very unlikely to, uh, to end up poor for a very length of time. You're five times more likely to be living in poverty if you have children and you're not married than if you don't have kids or if you wait. Uh, only about 3% of people who work full-time live below the poverty level. So all those things sort of sort of are, are true. Now, you have a certain amount of chicken and egg with them. Are the characteristics that make you likely live in poverty make you less likely to get a job, for example? So you do have a lot of ch- chicken and egg. You can't just sort of draw causation out of the correlation of these sorts of things. But there's certainly a certain amount of truth to what they're saying there. On the left, you, you can point to things like uh, racism, our history of racism in society, the fact that... Uh, you know, there's seven to ten million uh, trillion dollars in wealth that's been siphoned out of the African American community through slavery and Jim Crow. That's not available today. That's available in the white community. You can look at gender-based discrimination. You can simply look at economic dislocation. The fact that many of the things that I champion in terms of immigration and free trade and economic dynamism, you know, the, the creative destruction that Schumpeter talks about, I think are all great for society as a whole. But certain individuals can get caught up in them and left behind. And so both of these have a certain truth to them and a certain falsity to them. I think you can't pretend that the poor have no input in their own lives. They're wind, you know, chaff blown by the winds of fate, subject to these enormous outside historical dialectic forces, and, and they're basically totally helpless. On the other hand, uh, you know, I think I, I say I think that's kind of pretty condescending. You know, I, I certainly wouldn't tell somebody who was poor, you're helpless, give it up. Uh, on the other side of this, we all know that our decisions and our choices are constrained by our circumstances to some degree. And if you grow up in the area, say, where Freddie Gray was killed in Baltimore, where there's not even a fast food place in the area, no drug stores, no grocery stores, most of the people are on welfare, that there's education system is terrible there, that every time you set foot outside your door, the police hassle you. Uh, you're going to end up making very different decisions than if you grow up in Chevy Chase, Maryland, and you're a white kid in the best high school there. I mean, you're not you're not in the same set of circumstances. And I think we have to account for both of those things, that people do have choices, but those choices are influenced by the structures of society, and we need to affect both of those. Given the complexity there, then, um, how do we how do we craft policies? intended to help because we obviously can't have like a we're going to interview and dig into the life of each individual person living beneath the poverty line to figure out like 
what the reasons are for them so we can address those root causes. We we need something that works at a at a broader and more manageable level. Does that mean that we should just be giving people money? Is that the is that the best solution? I think moving towards that more and more is actually probably a pretty good idea. I mean, the one thing the government is actually pretty good at is cutting checks uh, and mailing them out. They they seem to do a pretty efficient job of that. Uh, managing for fine-tuning human behavior is where they tend to break down. And part of the problem, I think, with our welfare system is that very little of it is actually putting money in the hands of poor people. We pay a lot of people to service the poor. So we pay landlords, we pay doctors, we pay grocery stores, we pay educational institutions. What we don't do is give money to poor people and then expect them to take care of themselves and budget and do all the things that the rest of us do. We sort of treat them like they're kids getting an allowance rather than as adults being uh, who have a temporary downturn and need a little financial assistance. So I do think that you know moving towards cash is actually probably a pretty good move. Now, does that mean moving towards some sort of giant universal basic income? Probably not. I, I simply think that's unaffordable. And, you know, you're going to have to find some way to say that we're not giving this money to Bill Gates and George Soros and, and, and whoever. You know, they don't they certainly don't need it. And as soon as you start building that in, you start building in all sorts of complexities and welfare cliffs and phase out ranges and things that create more problems than they solve. If we move to programs that are more targeted support. So that's whether that's if that's not a basic income because of the problems that you just outlined, but is in general just cutting checks in some way. How do we deal with I guess what we might call like the the incentive spiral of not working, right? So if like poverty is we we want to give people money because the living beneath the poverty line is not you know, is not good. It's not like it's not a desirable way to live. Uh, and so we give them enough money to make them more comfortable. Now they have less of an incentive to go out into the workforce because they're more comfortable than they were or to, you know, put it, do whatever, change their behaviors in a way that's going to help them save more money or so on. Um, and And that that's going to then create this spiral is the argument that the more comfortable it is the more people will on the margin decide pop, like living you know being unemployed or underemployed is not so bad and that's going to draw more people into it which is then going to cost us more money or kind of increase the amount we have to pay out and so on and that in and of itself even if we're not giving money to bill gates is not is not sustainable yeah there's a real problem there that kind of unsolvable. And that is the idea that if you're going to have any sort of a phase out on these benefits, you immediately create a disincentive to get ahead. And these welfare cliffs can be severe. Uh, the highest marginal tax rate that anybody's going to face is not on Bill Gates or George Soros. It's actually on somebody who leaves uh, welfare and takes a job. They start paying the payroll tax on the first dollar they earn and some other taxes as well. In many cases, they start losing benefits very quickly. Uh, that their benefits are reduced uh, more than dollar for dollar. And then they, of course, incur the expenses of going to work. You now have child care and transportation and clothing costs and all the things that go with that. You can actually end up worse off financially by taking that job, uh, at least in the short term, uh, than, than by staying on welfare. So we, this is one of the contradictions of the modern welfare state. 
that goes along with this. I think in general, though, you can argue that most people want to be self-supporting. Most people are not going to be content to sit back and play video games all day and do whatever uh, simply because they get a minimal amount of, of finances. It's not like you're living the life of Riley on uh, when you're on welfare. We're not paying people huge amounts of money, uh, at least compared to the cost of living in most areas. A pivot to an interesting project that you were involved with. Was it a few years ago? I, I always my sense of time with the COVID gap gets a little bit. We just did the one year anniversary. The the project actually an, ended a year ago. It was a three year project, and it ended a year ago. And we've been doing follow up in the year since. So tell me about this because I think this was a really interesting example of taking the kinds of ideas for addressing poverty and welfare that you have articulated at the Cato Institute for years to a place that I think a lot of us would think was fairly hostile to those ideas, but seeming to have a decent amount of success with it. Yeah, we did a project on poverty and inequality in California. It was a three-year project, uh, ended a year ago, and of course, there's been follow-up since as we worked with uh, various folks in trying to get some of our suggestions put in place. And we chose California for an interesting reason. You take California and you think of it as being the wealthiest state out there or one of the wealthiest states out there. And it, and it does. It has solid economic growth. It has these pockets of vast wealth, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, Beverly Hills. And it has a traditionally very solid safety net. It spends a great, about $100 billion a year, I, I think, on welfare uh, in the state. It's, it's a large amount of money. It take, tries to take care of people. And yet it also has the highest poverty rate in the nation if you take into account the cost of living uh, out there. So clearly something wasn't working out there. And what we found was that it wasn't so much that they weren't spending enough money on welfare. It was that they were creating too much poverty by the programs they had for everything from criminal justice to a failed education system. Housing costs were through the roof out there, largely driven by, by the government. And we were able to look at this and then come up with a series of, I think, 24 specific recommendations of how the, what they could be doing differently to kind of stop pushing people into poverty in the first place. And we got a lot of, you know, when we first went out there, people said, oh, my God, the Cato Institute, you're libertarians, you're just coming out here to tell us to cut welfare. We didn't really talk about that at all. Uh, going back to something at the beginning, I said, we wanted to talk about this from the outside in rather than from the cut first school out there. And we said, look, let's try and make it as possible for as few as people in California as possible to need welfare. And then we'll, then you guys can have a debate over what you know how much you want to spend per person and what you want to spend on how you're going to finance and all those sort of things. But let's deal with these other issues first where we can reach agreement. Uh, we know that the criminal justice system in California, one out of every five people had a criminal record. We know that that was pushing people into poverty making it hard for them to get jobs and housing and education and so on. So this year they passed a bill that made it easier for people to expunge their records if they had kept themselves uh, out of trouble for, for a certain number of years and they had been arrested for minor offenses, you know, minor assault or drug offenses or things like that in the past. Uh, so we got some uh, effective changes made there. Um, we knew that housing costs were a huge problem that, uh, it was about $2,500 for a one-bedroom apartment in most places, $3,500 in big cities like L.A. or San Francisco, that the median cost of a home was over half a million dollars and so on. Uh, this was largely driven by California regulations that made it hard to build, exclusionary zoning laws, uh, parking requirements, things of that nature. 
And California did pass some legislation that we helped work on uh, to make some changes there as well, to make it easier to build. Simple supply and demand, that they were now, they had a population growth that was exceeding the number of houses they were building. And so it's no surprise that the housing costs were going up. Now they're building more houses, which is a good step in the right direction. We worked on welfare reform uh, in terms of things like asset testing, which prevents poor people from saving or or working. You know, this is one of those most contradictions, I think, in terms of the welfare system. We talked about working taking you out of welfare. Saving does as well. And you don't get out of poverty by spending your way out of poverty. You get out of it by saving and having some money to spend in the right ways. Well, if you get a welfare check... Um, and you spend every penny of it, you know, at the end of the month, if you have a little money left over, you run down and get those basketball shoes. We're pretty, we're just fine with that. That's the way we think the system should work. Take some of that money and put it in a 527 account so that your kids can go to school someday and we'll take away your welfare check. If you have a car so that you can go look for work, get a job and get off of welfare, we'll take away your check. Uh, these asset tests make very little sense. They actually cost more to enforce than they save. And at the same time, they prevent people from uh, from uh, taking the steps needed to uh, get out of out of poverty. Well, we worked with the, some legislators there, and uh, they passed, or they're in the process of passing legislation which will uh, deal with those asset tests and those cliffs that are uh, tied up with the programs now. So we've had some real success in terms of making changes that we think will reduce poverty in the long run. How do we end up with those kinds of? rules and policies that that create those perverse incentives because the people the people who are writing our welfare rules the regulators putting you know fleshing out the details or the legislators passing additional it's these aren't like bad people who are like i want to my goal is to make sure that poor people will spend their money on frivolous things but will be harmed by saving for college. Like they're not like kind of mustache twirling villains who are like, I want to do this and I want to screw people over. And yet so many of these policies have these really obvious, really awful, perverse incentives. How do we get there? Are they, do they not have like an economist saying, you know, this is going to be the result if you do this, like very clearly this will be the result or are they, for whatever reason, refusing to listen to that mythical economist? Like, wh- how do we get those kinds of really awful policies that hurt the very people they're intended to help? I think too often we're driven by outliers uh, in in this fear of outliers. So, for example, on savings, I know when we talk to people about saying, "Look, let's get rid of asset testing." It, it doesn't make much sense. They say, "Well, what about the guy who hits the lottery and then he stops working? Is he going to collect any collect food stamps?" Uh, you know, I can't really believe this guy who just got $10 million is actually going to go down and sign up for food stamps. But if he did, I guess I don't care, <laughs> uh, you know, that much. It, it's it's not that big a deal given all the other perverse incentives, but they really are driven by that. And you see on Fox News all the time exposés of somebody who took their welfare check to a strip club or somebody who bought alcohol from the local package store with it. And they play this up like it's constantly going on and it's, it's a big deal. And I think that that, uh, for sort of middle-class America, says, oh, well, then we, we should cut back. We should put rules in place. We, should, we can't trust uh, poor people. Uh, the studies show there's no difference in terms of how poor people spend their money 
uh, than middle class people. Uh, they're, they're no more likely to spend it on vices, for example. They don't go to the th- movie theater more often. They don't buy more cigarettes or more alcohol. Uh, they actually spend a little bit less when, when it comes to these vices because they have less money. Um, but yet we, we sort of think of, again, it comes back to what we talked about earlier, that there's this thinking that people who are in poverty are somehow, it's a moral failure. There, there's kind of this uh, this 1800s mentality that says, you know, this social Darwinism uh, aspect to it that says that we live in a meritocracy and everybody who's on the top did it because of hard work and they their own success and they, they've pushed themselves to get ahead. And if you've fallen behind, it's because you somehow haven't done enough or worked hard enough in your life and you, you're somehow, we shouldn't, uh, reward you for that. Yeah, it's good you say that because that is one of the things that drives me nuts about the way that a lot of libertarians talk is is that meritocracy and the the unwillingness to say recognize the role that luck plays in our lives. You know, like I remember having a conversation once with a successful businessman who owned a, a company um, that employed a lot of people, and he was talking with me about how important it was, like how how important kind of egalitarianism was to him in the sense of people having like equal power and whatnot. And I, I mentioned that I was like, how do you explain the disparity between say the amount of money that you make and the amount of money that the people who work for you make? Um, because it didn't seem to fit with some of the stuff that he was saying. And the answer he gave me was they have shorter time horizons than I do. You know, so they just they don't care about the long term as much as I do. And that's how they ended up as workers instead of owning this successful company. And it was it wasn't shocking in the sense that it's a very typical kind of answer, but it was just like I think that a lot of people, particularly like successful people, overlook how much luck played in them arriving at their success. And that if you like rolled back the tape, reran it. You know, and they started that business two days later, so another competitor had come into the marketplace, and so their business fails, or whatever it is. Like we we want, and so, and I think the corollary of that is we want our own success to be the product of our own agency, and and so if I am comfortably middle class or upper class, it's because of choices I made, values I had, and so on, and. And therefore, anyone who is not comfortably middle class or upper class or whatever, it's because they didn't make the right kinds of choices that I did. And it's such a – the left goes too far often in the other direction of, as we talked about, saying it's all luck. Like you know, individual agency has nothing to, to do with this. But I think a lot of libertarians – really just refuse to see and maybe there's i think there's a randian element to this as well of kind of venerating businessmen as these like superheroes but of just like not recognizing that your success was at least partially due to luck and that that means that you should look with at least empathy on people who didn't get the same breaks that you did yeah, I think we went through a lot of this back with the privilege debate and the idea that if you talked about people having privilege, it was, oh, my God, that means that you're telling me I didn't work hard and I didn't earn any of the things I've, I've got and things like that. And we're never saying that. But they're clearly that people grew up in middle class households or wealthy households who had 
access to different types of educational opportunities, who didn't have to worry about the same things that some people in some communities had to worry about every day. That, that, you know, that does make a difference. A lot of power, a lot of authority, a lot of money is not necessarily uh, earned. It, it, it's sort of the beneficiary of other circumstances that aren't due to you. And we should recognize that. That's not to take any away from anybody's hard work or to suggest that anybody didn't deserve what they've got. But it, it's to recognize that not everybody's circumstances are identical. And you can, of course, you can overcome bad circumstances. You can work twice as hard to get half as far or whatever, and you know, and, and it happens. People have grown up in absolute poverty and risen to the top, and that's a wonderful thing in our society. And a free market enables that more than uh, than I think other societies and other types of economic systems are going to allow that for. But we should recognize that they do have to work twice as hard to get that get half as far, and and we should have as few barriers as possible to their getting into the mainstream. When you went out to California and you were talking with legislators and other people in in the state government and people working in welfare did you encounter suspicion of your motives like i mentioned at the oh, beginning God, that people yes. assume that libertarians like hate the poor or whatever and so how do you how did you address that how did you have like be, establish fruitful conversations which you clearly did um, with people when there was that suspicion? Well, I think the first thing was just showing up. Uh, you know, so many libertarians like to talk to the choir. They say, oh, you know, I'm never going to talk to the uh, NAACP because they don't agree with me. They're a bunch of socialists. Uh, they're, they're, so I'm not going to talk to them. I, I'm going to go over here to the Young Americans for Freedom and I'll talk to that group there and they'll cheer and applaud and everything will be fine. I think part of it was just showing up to groups that weren't normally libertarian or that uh, people wouldn't expect me to be in front of. And the second was to acknowledge the uh, acknowledge our failures. You know, you know, I haven't been here before. I haven't talked to your groups before. I have, you know, I understand you're suspicious of me and you have every right to be. Uh, let me let me tell you why, you know, what I'm thinking about. Let me tell you about what it is that I want to accomplish, where I think we have shared goals and see if you agree. And if, if you don't, you know, that's fine. But, you know, let's let's start the dialogue. And I think that that makes a big difference. I, I think that you've got to go in. You're not lecturing them. You're not telling them they're wrong. You're not. You've got to be a certain amount of a humbleness to it and acknowledge that we haven't always addressed their concerns and that, you know, that we might not always be right either. Uh, you know, there's a certain amount of certainty among libertarians out there that they have the magic answer to everything and that uh, we don't have to listen. We don't have to learn. Well, I've changed my attitudes on things over the years, and I think that that's only fair to acknowledge. Were there certain issues? Because you, when you were describing the project, you were there were a lot of different. So you were talking about housing, and you were talking about um, benefits cutoffs, and all sorts of different things. Were there ones where having those conversations were more difficult, where people kind of were more dug in? Sure. I think education is an issue like that, that at least especially in California, where the teachers union is such a powerful influence, talking about uh, school choice and tuition tax credits and, get, and charter schools. I think that those were met with uh, often very difficult uh, to get p- people to get through there. I think when we talked about the regressive impact of some of the environmental regulations out there, that uh, that was hard. People said, oh, well, you don't believe in global warming. Well, yes, actually, I do. Uh, 
And, I, and, I, and I'm, you know, I think California can be proud of some of the environmental actions it's, it's taken. But, you know, if you have a law that basically makes like the California Environmental Quality Act that allows you to block uh, new construction on aesthetic environmentalism grounds, uh, that you've got problems. And, you know, the first time I talked to them, they didn't necessarily listen. But the 10th time I was out there, they began to believe that maybe I was coming out there for honest motives. What about the housing? Because this is one where, so you said that there was some success there, which is actually surprising in California. And housing seems to be one of those ones where particularly the left stakes out a position that is so obviously anti the poor that it's kind of shocking that the the NIMBYs will it's I mean it just it seems it seems totally obvious that if you want to make housing cheaper you need to build build more of it. You know? But their willingness to just basically keep people on the street so that those people won't live in their neighborhoods or there won't be more houses is really disheartening. Uh, and and I think shows how much people can speak to high ideals, but then when like push comes to shove, that like the fundamental selfishness just wins out. And so how do you have how do you have success in those kinds of conversations? Yeah, I, I think you you identify something that's very prevalent in, in California, which is that there's a lot of liberal rhetoric and very conservative action. It was, uh, uh, you know, we, sure, we need more housing for the poor. As long as no developer ever actually makes any money out of it, uh, you know, we should do it that way. As long as they don't build it in my part of town and, and it's gone through the proper environmental uh, vetting, and the community's had input in it, and it's aesthetically pleasing. And if you, if you meet these 500 different procedures, then you can build housing for the poor. And that shows how compassionate I am. Uh, you know, and at the same time, on the right, you had just kind of keep those people out of my neighborhood. I mean, uh, you know, at least there, there was less of the rhetoric around it, but surrounding it. But I think things finally got so bad, they were even listening, willing to listen to people like me. And... Uh, that uh, that there's sort of a broad middle developed, and the, the Yimby movement, the Yes in My Backyard movement, really started in California. It's now spreading around the country, but you see it spread uh, launched there simply because people were paying three thousand dollars to sleep in somebody's living room on a couch. I mean, it, it was uh, impossible to continue the way it was, and so that which cannot go on forever eventually changes, uh, as I think I, I heard once. Yeah, it is. It does seem like, yes, it has to hit that point where it's so shocking. I I am like a daily reader of the New York Times, and they have this running feature where it's someone looking for an apartment or a condo in New York, and they'll be like, Here, these are the criteria they want, and then there's these three – here's three options, and then you can vote on which one you think they picked, and then they'll tell you. And it's always – it's like a 700-square-foot – studio or 600 square foot studio and it's like and it's six hundred thousand dollars which doesn't sound bad but then there's like two grand a month in co-op fees and it yeah it's it's just it's crazy it's crazy how much how much effort it has taken to get people to like recognize that these things are connected and not building housing is what causes this um but i also think that a lot of the times you know, as we talked about with like opposition to the welfare state being 
basically a sublimated in the Freudian sense um, way of expressing just distaste for poor people or immigrants, it feels like a lot of nimbyism is a similar thing. It's a way to provide an excuse for not letting those people, I'm doing air quotes, uh, come into the neighborhood, whether that's like poor people who are going to you know, live differently than you are or immigrants who are going to speak differently than you are. If you have prejudices against them, refusing to build housing to let them in is one way to keep them out. Um, and I feel like a lot of the times the viciousness that you see in these debates is because you end up pushing on – like it's if you if you knock down all of the pretextual arguments eventually you get to the underlying thing which is i don't want these people living in my neighborhood yeah historically we know that that's that's the case that zoning laws were explicitly racial in the beginning i think the first zoning law was actually in la and it was had to do with uh keeping housing away from industrial centers and things like that so you could sort of set that aside but the second big zoning law was in Baltimore, and one of the provisions in the zoning law was that you were unable to rent or sell to anybody who was not already the majority race on that block. Uh, and that that ordinance actually was so successful, it was copied by Richmond, Virginia, and Birmingham, Alabama, and Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and places like that. So it, it had a lot of impact. The Supreme Court actually struck that down, of a surprising property rights victory. They said you can't keep people from selling or renting to whoever that you want to. So they said, okay, we can't do it on the basis of race. Let's find other ways to make it impossible for those people to live on our neighborhood, our block, or whatever. So now you can sell to anybody on the base, regardless of their race as long as you have a big enough house on a big enough lot with a big enough setback and enough parking requirements. And it looks like all the other houses in the neighborhood and it's a single family unit and so on. You put enough restrictions in there and you can keep them out, even though you never mentioned the term race uh, any, anywhere in there. And, you know, I do think you, when you start talking about neighborhood character, it begins to, uh, to, to come out. Uh, what is neighborhood character? Well, they'll bring crime. Uh, there's no particular evidence to that. Or they'll bring litter to our neighborhood and I mean, you can't really pin anybody down on proof of any of these things, but there's just sort of this vague distaste for people who aren't our type of people. I think it is, today it's probably class-based more than it is as a matter of race, but, there's, but there is this sort of snobbishness that goes with it. So you had success in California, although obviously as a state, its policies have a long way to go. Long way to go. Uh what are the next steps there? Well, we're continuing to talk to folks in California. I say we, I think there's some hope and more hope on the housing front. Criminal justice seems to be moving forward. The question is whether you can break through on some of the economic regulation front, things like the cost of child care, which is hugely overregulated in California and therefore almost unaffordable to most middle class or lower class, uh, working class families. I think you've got to deal with uh, issues like that. The occupational licensing is one of the worst states in the nation for things of that nature. And we're going to have to build and pick kind of pick and choose. Uh, I always liken it. If in football, you sort of try and run through the seams. You try to you don't find that linebacker and beat your head against him. You try to find the areas where you can slip through. And I think that we've been doing that in California and have to keep doing that. But I think it's also a model that Cato and libertarians can take around the uh, – around the country, of talking to people who aren't the usual suspects, of finding common ground with them, of saying, look, we want the same thing as you. I think you really want everybody to thrive, everybody to have opportunity. So do we. 
And maybe we don't always agree on exactly how to get there, but let's start with the idea that we're talking about the same thing, that we have the same goal in mind, and let's work backwards from there and see what else we can agree on, agree on with that. I think that we did that successfully in California, and I think that's a model that libertarians can practice anywhere. I, 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 edgy tweets and you know being a, a Twitter lord are not going to get any anything accomplished. Uh, I think that actually working with people uh, is the answer. Thank you for listening to Reimagining Liberty. This show is listener supported. If you'd like to become a member, gain access to our Discord community, and listen to every new episode two weeks before its public release, look for the link in the show notes or head to reimagininglibertycom slash subscribe. Subscribe.